Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. Apologies to all our loyal listeners for the length of time that it has been. It's been a busy time here at the Wilson Center, but with so much going on in foreign policy, you know the Need to Know podcast is not going to fail. We're going to talk again with Michael Kugelman, who is our resident Afghanistan South Asia expert about this Afghanistan pullout. Michael Kugelman, welcome back yet again to the Need to Know podcast. Always good to be here with you, Aaron. Well, we always like talking to you. The last episode that we aired about Afghanistan was on May 7th. Um, so early May, we hear about this Afghanistan withdrawal. A long time coming. Uh, so here we are 20 years later. And the plan was, from the Biden administration, all, Afghan all troops out of Afghanistan by September 11th. Um, and what we discussed there was, you know, it takes time to do this. And, and there was, I think, on both of our parts, some skepticism as to whether or not this could really happen. But the withdrawal has been continuing apace. So why don't we talk a little bit about where we stand right now here two months later um, and what, what the Afghanistan withdrawal actually looks like right now here in mid-July. Yeah, so the withdrawal has actually taken place um in, or should I say the, the withdrawal has taken less time than it was expected to. Um, you know, we're looking at a situation where a number of weeks before that September 11th deadline for the withdrawal, um, the, uh, the drawdown is just about complete, uh, as I understand it. And President Biden um, addressed the nation some days ago when he said that August 31st is basically when everything will be completed. So that means that it'll be 100% done about two weeks before it was uh, expected to be done originally. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, I think that it's striking that um, the U.S. has been able to move this withdrawal along more quickly than originally expected, even as it plays out against a situation in Afghanistan where the insurgency is just making more and more progress, where offenses become increasingly ferocious, to the point that, you know, I, I think you could argue that the optics don't look very good. The fact that U.S. forces are, are leaving quickly at a moment when Afghanistan is suffering through this unprecedented Taliban assault. That was something we talked about a little bit in our last conversation is really, well, of course, there's comparisons to the fall of Saigon uh, after the U.S. pulled out of Vietnam. But we also talked about whether or not the Taliban was going to be able to make headway in urban areas where it had formerly been repelled by U.S. airstrikes and by Afghanistan security forces. So what does the picture look like for the Taliban on the ground as the U.S. has withdrawn? Are they waiting until uh, August 31st before they move in? Or are we already seeing them take some action? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the good news, getting to your initial point about, you know, thinking about the Vietnam uh, exit uh, all those years ago, 
I think that the Vietnam analogy does not apply uh, here in Afghanistan, and that is because U.S. forces are not getting shot at as they leave. Uh, I think that's a very important distinction to make. They're not under enemy fire, or should I say they're not under enemy fire from the Taliban. There are plenty of other U.S. enemies in Afghanistan, such as ISIS, but the main, you know, the main insurgent group is not targeting the U.S. as it leaves, and that's because of the agreement that uh, the U.S. government signed with the Taliban back in February of 2020, which basically stipulated that um, U.S. forces would leave Afghanistan and that they would not be shot at by the Taliban while they're leaving. So I think that's one silver lining. It's hard to find silver linings in the Afghanistan context today, but that's one of them, that U.S. forces are not getting shot at as they leave. But in terms of you know what to be looking for, the situation on the ground, indeed, I think that one of the major initial changes that we could see on the battlefield in Afghanistan after the withdrawal is complete is that the Taliban will start moving into some cities. And what we've seen over the last few weeks since we spoke in May is that the Taliban has already moved in and actually surrounded the perimeter of a number of provincial capitals in Afghanistan, uh, about four or five at the least. And there have been some cases where it has been able to get uh, right into the outskirts of some other uh, major cities. And I think that the reason why it's doing that, why it's surrounding these cities right now, but not actually entering them and doing anything more is that I think it just wants to um, put as much pressure on the Afghan government as possible to make it feel concerned, given that Kabul doesn't know what's going to happen. Kabul does not know whether the Taliban is going to try to move in or whether it's not going to. And I think that that, that sense of uncertainty and anxiety plays to the, plays to the benefit of, uh, of the Taliban. Now, in, I think that the Taliban certainly has an incentive to start entering cities in a big way, just because, as I think we discussed the last time around, the removal of U.S. air power from the battlefield equation is going to change the calculus in a big way. A few major mathematics uh, metaphors right there. Just because you know, it was U.S. air power that was, most, um, was the biggest factor in repelling Taliban forces as they've tried to enter cities in the past. Basically, what you've seen over the last few years is U.S. airstrikes um, providing support to Afghan ground forces that are trying to push the Taliban out of cities. But without that U.S. air power, I mean, certainly you're going to have Afghan air power. You're going to have the air force, the Afghan air force, trying to step into that role, but its capacities are not nearly as strong as what you get from the firepower um, unleashed by the U.S. or other NATO countries. So that's, that's going to be a big issue, uh, or that's going to be a big opportunity for the Taliban. Now, the agreement that the U.S. signed with the Taliban in 2020, nowhere in the written parts of the, of the agreement does it say anything about what the Taliban can and cannot do in terms of its war fighting and its posture. But there are many unwritten, unpublished, unpublic or non-public parts of the U.S.-Taliban agreement. And as I understand it, one of the parts, one of the unpublished parts of the agreement stipulates that the Taliban cannot enter Afghan cities. So the question is, will the, will the, will the Taliban remain true to that obligation in its agreement with the U.S., or will it just basically shrug its shoulders and go all in after U.S. forces leave? And that gets me to the final point I'll make. You know, the, the U.S. government and other allied governments have been saying for quite some time that the Taliban earned, it gained legitimacy from the U.S. and the world on the whole when it got that agreement with the United States. And that now that the Taliban has that legitimacy, it doesn't want to risk losing it by trying to essentially finish off this fight or continue this military fight and seize power by force 
because it knows it would lose that legitimacy. The U.S. would never be willing to recognize a Taliban government that seizes power through the use of force. And that suggests that the Taliban would be willing to hold back from going into cities, too, because that would entail violating the very agreement that gave it legitimacy. But I don't really know if legitimacy is all that important to the Taliban at this point, given all of the the horrific things it's done over the last few weeks and all of the advances it's made on the battlefield. Well, certainly, uh, you know, talking about those horrific things, I think that's, you know, when we think about the fall of Saigon, it's not only helicopters taking American troops out, but it's also the North Vietnamese who came in and the South Vietnamese who died uh, while that was going on. Um, So are we looking at at possibly seeing that happen uh, when the U.S. pulls out? So, you know, I think one thing that's very striking in recent months with the Taliban is the the contrast between the public messaging coming from the senior Taliban leadership and the actual actions of the Taliban. So, for example, we've heard uh, you know senior Taliban leaders have issued statements saying that they look forward to the opportunity to um, have conversations and negotiations with the Afghan government, and they look forward to discussing um, how to promote peace and stability in Afghanistan. And yet, on the other hand, you look at the situation on the ground. Uh, you know, it's now been. Uh, well more than a year since it signed that agreement with the U.S. that was meant to launch the intra-Afghan dialogue, a formal peace process. And since that time, there's been very little progress with those negotiations. The Taliban has not once agreed to lay down arms, even for a temporary period, with the exception of a three-day truce during the Eid holiday earlier this year. And, uh, you know, the Taliban, as I think you had noted earlier, or maybe I, as I had noted earlier, it's, it's, it's waging um, very intense offensives that have resulted in it seizing dozens of districts in Afghanistan. Since May 1st alone, it's been able to capture um, border crossings with Pakistan and Iran and Turkmenistan and Tajikistan. And also, I think what's most significant and troubling is that every day brings news of a new atrocity. Um, you know, a few days ago, news broke that the Taliban was engaged in a, an assassination campaign of off-duty military pilots. And I think the idea here is that the Taliban was trying to change the state of play in terms of the military balance between the Taliban and the Afghan military. The Taliban knows that Afghanistan's air force is superior to Taliban air power. I mean, this is one of the... I mean, you could argue that Taliban military power on the ground can actually be superior to the Afghan militaries. But when it comes to air power, the Taliban doesn't have aircraft, not yet at least. So what the Taliban is trying to do is to literally kill off um, the Afghan Air Force, and not in conflict, or not only in conflict, but in cases when these pilots are off duty, when they're going to stores and things like that. I mean, this is horrible. And then CNN, in more recent days, released video showing... um, uh, Taliban fighters executing Afghan uh, soldiers that had recently surrendered. So, you know, this all suggests that uh, it sort of brings to it sort of raises a lot of questions about what is Afghanistan going to look like after U.S. forces leave, and even more importantly, what will Af- what will areas of Afghanistan look like that are governed by the Taliban? We've already heard from researchers and journalists that have been in areas of Taliban control that. It looks a lot like it did in the 1990s. Um, for all this talk coming from Taliban leaders that they, they're going to respect rights of women and so on and so forth, you know, kid, girls are not in school, been cases of um, 
of uh, you know this draconian form of justice being uh, used, like whipping people for stealing things, all of that, it's not a good sign. And these terrible things that have happened just in the last few days, I think, amplify the risks to, um, to society and politics in Afghanistan following the, the withdrawal. We also talked about the, the time that it takes to get equipment out and that there was going to be a lot of logistics that the military was going to need to figure out as it pulled out. Do we have any more information now, two months later, of what is going on with the equipment that we have already brought to Afghanistan and it is difficult to pull out within a short time frame? Yeah, I mean, as we've discussed, the um, the withdrawal process the withdrawal process has gone a bit more quickly than expected, which is striking, given that indeed, I mean, you're you're talking about a lot of large equipment that takes time to remove, and I think that uh, you know the U.S. wanted to make arrangements to ensure that the equipment that was too big to be removed could be handed over safely to the Afghan military, so that it wouldn't be seized by the Taliban, um, but. Based on some of the news that has emerged since we last spoke, uh, Aaron, it, it appears that in some cases uh, the U.S. military could have coordinated more effectively the way in which it um, it handed things off to the Afghan uh, to the Afghan side. I'm sure you know, you're aware of reports about how the U.S. Um, handed off power at the Bagram Air Base, which is the largest uh, U.S. military facility in Afghanistan, really synonymous with the U.S. military presence there over all these years. Um, while the U.S. government officially denies that this was the case, multiple reports and sources have indicated that um, U.S. forces basically left the base without really coordinating directly with Afghan forces and that Afghan forces didn't really know exactly when they were leaving and so forth. That's troubling. The other troubling thing, and this has been proven um, with images and and, and so on, uh, there was so much stuff at the base in Bagram, um, and obviously the most sensitive stuff, the military equipment, you know, that was clearly taken out or transferred to Afghan forces, um, presumably. But um, one thing that happened is you had large amounts of just stuff used for civilian purposes, um, electrical appliances, various other types of gadgets. Basically, it was all destroyed um, on the base, and then it was deposited as trash right outside the base, and then you had, you know, Afghans that came upon it, and, you know, they're trying to figure out what it was, and then they realized that it was material that had been previously at the air base, but that it hadn't been destroyed, nothing could really be done about it, and it was left as trash. Now, I, to me, that suggests something that would happen when U.S. forces are in haste, and they don't have time to figure out how to deal with these other things that ideally they take back with them, but they didn't have time to think about it, so they just destroyed them and threw them literally outside uh, on the street, outside the base. Now, talking about optics, I just don't think that's a very uh, good closing, it's not a good parting message to leave Afghans. I think that the, and the images were, were beamed across the world, all this trash lying around. It's, it's, it's very unfortunate. I understand the need to, to move quickly and get out, but that particular um, anecdote, I feel, is, is rather troubling and somewhat of a symbolic of what the U.S. military presence had become at the end, an effort just to get out as quickly as possible. Yeah, that is a striking image and thought. Uh, I wonder uh, what Congress will will have to say about some of this in upcoming budget hearings and and uh, national defense authorization discussions. Another thing that we talked about was was the the special immigrant visa 
opportunities to try to help out some of these contractors, some of these translators, people on the ground in Afghanistan who for the last 20 years have been helping U.S. forces on the ground. I know uh, there are some bills in Congress. I know that Senator Gene Shaheen has a, a bill for a, that seems to be bipartisan for special immigrant visa status for some of these folks. Have you heard any more on that? Do we have any further update on on the positions of how it might be uh, to help out some of these? I mean, my understanding is that there are plans in place um, within the administration to begin um, repatriating at least some of these Afghans that have helped U.S. military forces. I know there's been discussions about the fact that there's preparations being made to um, bring them out of the country, but it's unclear where they're going to be going because I don't think they're going to be coming to the United States because they don't have visas yet. There's talk about their being um, uh, brought to third party uh, to, to third countries. There's also possibilities that they could end up at U.S. military bases outside of Afghanistan. But I think at this point in time, um, I think the government, the U.S. government, has been very quiet about this, as one could understand. I mean, this is a very sensitive issue. And, uh, you know, there's certainly security risks of broadcasting the fact that on X day you're going to have all of these former uh, interpreters leaving Afghanistan and going to Y country. Um, so I'm not, I'm not too surprised that the government has been, has been coy. But I, I do think that there is a plan in process, sort of like a middle ground plan that falls short of just bringing these folks to the U.S., but a plan that allows them to be um, brought to a safer position um, until something more permanent can be worked out, presumably bringing them to the United States. One thing that's not clear, though, is whether the family members of these folks would be leaving, too, because I know that's extremely important, to at least those that have family members, and most of them do. Hopefully, there'll be arrangements made that at least the immediate family, you know, wives, kids, so forth, can get out uh, as well. But, you know, it's quite clear to me that Beyond completing the withdrawal, this issue of helping Afghans that have helped the U.S. military, I mean, that I think this is the biggest um, policy priority for the U.S. and Afghanistan, beyond the withdrawal itself. Well, I appreciate you tracking it. And, you know, you're the one at the Wilson Center who really keeps your eye on this. Uh, so what is... Uh... What, what are you what are you tracking right now? What's kind of what keeps you up at night right now as an expert who is following all of this? I mean, I think for me, the question is what changes? What, what I'm sort of thinking forward to is is what changes after the withdrawal is officially complete, which I you know is, is essentially August 31st. And specifically, what will the Taliban do about the issue of the cities? Will it try to enter the cities or not? Because I think that'll go a long way towards determining how bad this war could get, how much worse a civil war could get, how much more of a threat there could be to the Afghan government. Though I wouldn't overstate this threat of the Afghan government being being overthrown by the Taliban. I actually don't think that'll happen. But um, you know, if the Taliban does decide to go into the cities, that would indicate that it's willing to violate its agreement with the U.S., that it's willing to overlook this issue of legitimacy and that it may not care about uh, that legitimacy. It may not care if it loses legitimacy for in the, in the eyes of the international community for having violated the agreement. And that would suggest that it wouldn't really be interested in any type of uh, peace process or negotiation. So I think that'll be a key marker right there. Let's see what the Taliban does. I mean, how, to what extent will they just stay on the outside of cities or will they try to enter them? So that's one thing I'll really be watching for. 
Well, let's put a note on the calendar to check in again in late August or September, early September to see how things are going. You know, we have the 20th anniversary of 9-11 coming up, so uh, you're going to be busy. Congress is going to be busy, uh, but certainly we're we're happy that you're here tracking all of this for us. Well, it's always a pleasure, uh, Aaron. There's always plenty to talk about in this context, but uh, yeah, I look forward to our next conversation. All right. We'll talk soon. Thanks for being here.